Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Welcome back to the pod, true crime people. Also, thank you for over 2,000 plays now. Thank you so much. Let me tell you right now, this case, the case this week, it's uh, it's a twisty one. I mean, we got a sick son of a bitch in this episode. Unlike a lot of my other episodes here on Hell No, this, it's not a murder case, thankfully. You can probably guess by the title of this week's episode, it has to do with an incredibly unethical and sinister doctor. I stumbled across this case on a Forensic Files episode. The entire episode, like the entire time I was watching this episode, I was saying, what? What? How? What? Like, yeah, it just had me saying what and how, and then what again for the entire episode. Yeah, today's episode, it's a Canadian case, and it takes place in a very small town in Saskatchewan called Kipling, and it takes place on Halloween night, 1992. That's right, Halloween night. By October 31st, the Canadian weather is crisp. I love it. And sometimes there's even snowflakes. As a child, I remember having to pick out a Halloween costume that was suitable for the snow. Uh, The leaves are changing color and they have almost all fallen from the trees for the winter. If you're Canadian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All the corn and wheat fields have been harvested. Pumpkins have been harvested. They've been carved. They've been lit up outside people's homes. It's usually a very, very magical time of year. It's one of my favorites. But for one 20-year-old resident of Kipling, this night sparked an event that would set her on a quest for justice, and she stops at nothing until she gets it. Only referred to as Candy in the Forensic Files episode, I will also refer to her as Candy. I did discover her name. It's it's not that secret. It was in the 72 Hours episode done on this case, and it was in a news article that I found as well. But if she wanted her name known, I feel like she would have allowed Forensic Files to use it. Like, she would have allowed all sources to use it. So I don't know what happened there. Uh, I'm unsure. So I'm just going to go ahead and not use her real name just because her real name is not given in every source I saw. And perhaps there's a reason for that. So we are going to refer to her as Candy. She tells her personal story and it is mind blowing. Candy is so smart, determined, and fearless. You can really tell from her interviews this about her. Honestly, Candy, if you're listening to this, I think you would make an amazing true crime podcast host. Kipling is a rural farming town, and it has a population of just over 1,000 residents, so it is small. On Halloween night, Candy has an argument with her boyfriend, and it must have been pretty upsetting because Candy ended up wanting to talk to her friend who worked at the hospital, and that's according to the Forensic Files episode. This does slightly different in the 72 Hours episode. In today's time, I'm sure she just would have texted or called her friend, but in 1992, in a small town, it was really common to go and find a person you wanted to talk to. Also, perhaps Candy wanted to go to the hospital because she was so angry. She didn't, you know, maybe it was a lot of anxiety. Maybe it was a lot of panic and she wanted to get some help for this. So Candy gets to the hospital and she asks for her friend, but a nurse tells her that her friend isn't there. 
And the nurse can see how upset Candy is and ask if she would like to see a doctor. And Candy says, sure, why not? After all, it's Canada. It's free to see a doctor. She's already there. The doctor she is going to see is one that she trusts. She knows this doctor because this doctor actually had delivered her baby. The doctor's name is Dr. Schneeberger, also known as Dr. John. He's in his 30s, originally from South Africa, married with four children. Two of those children are two of those children's two of those children are his biologically and the other two are stepkids from his uh, wife's previous relationship. He's a trusted family practitioner in the community. So when he suggests a sedative to relax her, to relax Candy, she, you know, because she's very tense and, and she's very upset, that Candy trusts him. And she's like, yeah, like this doctor knows me. He thinks that this will help me. Yes, absolutely. I trust him. Candy recalls being so angry when she was first talking to Dr. Schneeberger that she said she was so angry she could kill her boyfriend. But she's, she didn't say it in a way that it was a threat. She said it in a way to convey how mad she was at him, not not in a threatening way. And we have all heard friends or somebody say this before, like, oh, I'm so mad at blah, blah, blah. I could just kill them. But it's like just a way to express how mad they are. Before she was given anything, she said she had already started to calm down. She wasn't in full-on hysterics, but she was mad and she was upset. The sedative wasn't a pill, like a Valium or something to take the edge off. It was a full-blown injection that essentially paralyzes the recipient. The sedative is called Versed and it's a benzodiazepine. It's used to sedate people who are undergoing a medical procedure. So this, it's, it's already a huge red flag because there is no way she needed something that strong for anxiety or anger. Anybody out there who suffers from anxiety, you will know full well what a benzodiazepine is. And, and a lot of times it's, it's in a pill form and it's usually a low milligram dose and it's for panic attacks and anxiety so for this to be full-on injected into her is that's um yeah that's heavy that's heavy sedation immediately after the injection went into her she felt numb no control over her muscles she described it as feeling like jelly and this is terrifying because as her body gave out she wanted to scream but she says only an eerie croaking noise came out of her mouth like she said it sounded like something a frog would a sound a frog would make since the drug was so strong she can't completely remember clearly what was happening but she could feel pressure like somebody was raping her and when she was able to move again she knew that she had been raped she wasn't completely unconscious the entire time but still she knew what was what was happening when she became mostly conscious she could see the doctor leaving the room in the 72 hours episode she says that she didn't kind of know what was going on and she couldn't move her body and it was terrifying because she was paralyzed but she did manage to move her arm slightly to let the doctor know hey i'm not unconscious i know what you're doing and she says this is when he kind of realizes oh shit she's not unconscious and that's when she regains her ability to to move more and she can see him leaving the room 
So absolutely terrifying, very traumatic. Due to the Versed, she most likely lost consciousness at some point or just couldn't remember what had happened the entire time, but she knew, she knew she was raped. She knew enough. She was conscious enough to know what had happened. She was alone in the examination room when she came to entirely, aside from seeing the doctor leave right when she was coming back and, and gaining her, her ability to move and, and totally see and feel again. She saw him leave, but when she was fully awake, she was alone in there. And this is really weird because when Versed is given in an injection, the patient is supposed to be monitored closely as the drug can actually cause breathing difficulties, but she, she was alone. She wasn't being monitored. In this state of dizziness, she takes off her underwear and puts them in a plastic bag to preserve the evidence. And she ends up spending the night at the hospital because she was still like really dizzy and probably kind of out of it from the Versed. She doesn't tell anyone that night, probably because, fuck, I mean, she's just been drugged, heavily sedated. She doesn't know what's going on. She's probably very confused, very dizzy. So she spends that night in the hospital. The next day she finds Dr. Schneeberger and she asks him, what was that drug you gave me? And he says, quote, why did it give you wild dreams? Unquote. <laughs> and Candy knew that he was already trying to cover up this rape by saying that. Candy leaves the hospital and confides in her parents what she believed had happened the night before. And they believe her 100%, no doubt. There is no doubt in their mind she was telling the truth. So Candy sets out to Regina, which is the capital of Saskatchewan and two hours from Kipling. There she goes to a rape clinic and when they conduct the exam, they find exactly what Candy knew they would. The vaginal swab, her underwear and her jeans all tested positive for semen. Now she's thinking, oh, I got you. I got you, asshole. But things do not go as planned. Luckily, Candy doesn't give up. Candy goes to police and accuses Dr. Schneeberger of the rape and gives the evidence to police. She's like, this happened. What? Here's the evidence. Basically just did have the investigation for you. Here you go. News gets out in the community and she does have some supporters, but also there are people who don't believe her. And over the next few years, it sounds like a lot of people made her life hard by not believing her, which is so incredibly sad. And I couldn't even imagine how hard that would have been for her to go through. Because at any point she could have said, you know, this is enough. I'm going to give up fighting this, but she didn't. People are saying she's only after a payout and other rumors are flying around. Her character is strongly judged and nobody wants to believe that their family practitioner is capable of doing this. The community sees a family man with a highly regarded profession and they see Candy as a young single mother who works at a gas station. And this, it, oh gosh, it just would have been so hard on her, but she refuses to let this crime go unanswered for because she is a badass renegade woman. Police go to the hospital and they ask around and sure enough, a nurse confirms Candy's story that she was in there and the doctor had given her a sedative and there was about 20 minutes that the doctor and Candy were alone in the examination room. They go and speak to Dr. Schneeberger and he tells police that he would never do that. He denies it all and says that Candy was hysterical when he saw her and that's why he gave her the sedative to calm her down. But he also makes it clear to police 
that the sedative can cause hallucinations. And he seems to be like saying erotic hallucinations. When police ask him, why would she be saying this about him? He says, she's probably after my money. Oh, maybe she's in love with me. Just, oh, he's just so disgusting. Yeah, that must be it. She must be in love with you. That's why she's accusing you of rape and also has the evidence. Dr. Schneeberger catches Candy off guard when she learns he will willfully give his DNA to be tested against the semen sample. And he says, yeah, you can take my blood. So he volunteers for this. He's like, I didn't do this and you can take my blood and I will prove it to you. So a nurse draws blood from his left arm as per his request. The nurse takes the needle, goes into the vein, draws the blood, and the sample gets sent off for testing. But the results come back as not a match. Candy refuses to believe this. She knows what he did. How could the blood DNA not match the semen DNA? My first thought was, who does Dr. Schneeberger know at the lab? Who would have switched the samples or who was his nurse who drew this blood from him and were they perhaps involved in some way? That was my first thought. And or, and or, did they botch the blood sample somehow? But this case, it just gets even crazier. 10 months later, Candy was still gunning for the doctor and he agrees to another DNA test so he can put the allegations to rest. It's now August, 1993. He agrees that a lab technician can draw blood from his left arm again. Forensic Files says that usually for a DNA test, they just need a finger prick of blood. But Dr. Schneeberger, he was only allowing them to draw blood from his left arm. So again, We've got a technician now, they get a needle, the process is being monitored by police, uh, the, the police can clearly see, the police officer in the room can, can clearly see the doctor roll up his sleeve and he can see his arm clearly. The technician injecting the needle under his skin is like, yes, the needle's in. The police officer watches the entire process. They are really keeping a watch on this process this time. They really wanna keep a close eye when this blood is drawn. So they, again, they draw the blood, it's sent off to the lab for testing, and it came back as not a match again. And I thought, who the hell is working at the lab or who is in charge of transporting the sample because something is happening between the moment the blood is drawn and the moment it's tested. Why is the DNA not matching? How is this DNA not matching? A lot of people in the community are saying it's not matching because he didn't do it, but Candy knows. She knows what she knows and she knows that she's right and she's fighting for justice. When the Crown Prosecutor is interviewed for the Forensic Files episode, he says, quote, Versed can account for all kinds of hallucinations possibly, but it can't produce semen, unquote. And boy, have I never heard a truer statement in the true crime world. So what the fuck is happening here? Another thought I had was, did someone else find Candy unconscious uh, when she wasn't being monitored? And was it this person who raped her? After hearing the DNA didn't match twice, I was thinking, okay, what's the con here? I always believed Candy was raped, but now I'm wondering if maybe... 
maybe somebody had paid this doctor to drug women and then they would come in and rape them, like some kind of sex trafficking situation. After the second negative result comes back, Candy actually had to move because the community turned on her so badly. Candy packs up and she moves all of her stuff and she moves her and her baby to Regina. By 1994, police closed the investigation on the doctor. I'm not sure if they closed Candy's case because she was raped. There was proof of that. And it is police's job to find out who did that. Whether they were still looking, I don't know. But uh, the Dr. Schneeberger, he had been cleared and they had basically closed the case on him. Candy, she would not take this sitting down and she hired a private investigator to do what the police couldn't. She spent money on a private investigator. She spent money on lab testing. She was spending money on basically what the police should have been doing. The private investigator was on the job and he was good at it. He broke into the doctor's car, which he says was unlocked. He says it was left unlocked. So is it really breaking in? Anyways, he took the, he took a chapstick tube that he had found in the car and they had that tested because it contained, let me see if I can get this word right, epithelial cells. Ooh, look at me, forensic files. It contained epithelial cells from whoever used it from their lips and that can be tested. It amazes me how little labs need to test for a DNA sample. Like someone drinks out of a cup, boom, DNA. Someone smokes a cigarette, boom, DNA. It's, it's wild how little they need. This makes me wonder why police didn't bring the doctor in for questioning when all this had started and maybe tested something he drank out of like they do in a lot of interrogations oh would you like a glass of water would you like a can of pepsi and then they drink it and then the interrogation or the interview ends and then police put on a glove they grab that cup they put it in a bag and they send it to the lab why they couldn't do that in this case i don't know but we will see later it would have saved them a lot of time and also, why did they keep allowing Dr. Schneeberger to choose the type of DNA sample he wanted to give? I guess because he voluntarily gave the DNA he's allowed to choose because it wasn't like a warrant or something. I'm not too sure. Well, guess what? The second test took six months for police to get back the negative, but... In 10 days after the chapstick was tested by a private lab, the DNA on the chapstick was a match to the semen found on Candy's rape kit. What are the chances of that? What the fuck is going on here? Candy had funded for the test herself from a private lab, by the way, which would have cost a lot. But also it made me wonder even more if Dr. Schneeberger was paying somebody in the lab that police used because why didn't his blood match in the first and second test? And why did it take six months for the police to get back the results of the second blood test? Does it not alarm anyone else how slow they moved on this rape case? I just had so many questions at this point in the case. I thought maybe whoever pays the doctor to sedate women use this chapstick or something, but I also thought, how did he rig that, that blood DNA test twice if he wasn't paying a lab worker or someone involved in pathology transport? I just had no idea what was going on at, at this point of 
of hearing this case. Right when Candy thinks she finally has her case, she gets slapped down by the justice system yet again. At this point, she's feeling like criminals are more protected by the system than the system getting justice for victims. She takes this evidence to police, but since the sample was taken illegally, it can't be used in court. And also it wasn't exactly what they would call a known sample. They didn't see the doctor use the chapstick, they just found it in his car. Therefore, it might not have been his epithelial, epithelial cells, epithelial cells, epithelial cells on that chapstick. I don't know where that song came from, but uh, I will never forget how to say epithelial now. There was a few problems with this now matching DNA test. There was a few problems with it, but it was still undoubtedly compelling. Candy's feeling good about the discovery and decides to file a civil suit, which means she's filed charges against him a la the medical society to which this goes before court. Candy remembers the pink eye the doctor's wife Lisa Schneeberger was giving her the entire time they were in court Lisa thought here's the woman who is trying to ruin my family ruin my husband and ruin our name but later we're going to see just how bad Lisa must have felt about that hardcore stink eye and she was given candy in court but on this day she thought she was supporting her soulmate she thought she was supporting the man she loved I'm not really sure about what came from that day in court, but it did, however, get the doctor to agree to give another blood sample to be tested. Okay, we're on sample number three by police, sample number four all around. November 20th, 1996, four years after Candy's allegations, they try again. This sample was taken in a forensics lab, meaning no transportation would be needed. I watched the recording of this as it was videotaped by police and it's crystal clear. He rolls up his sleeve, he exposes his vein, it's visible. You can see, you can see everything and you're like, okay, wait, what is this? How, what's happening here? And this technician, she actually wanted to do a finger prick sample to get the blood this time. But he said no, because he has some kind of condition that will cause bruising if they prick his finger. So whatever that's about, I don't know. But they never ask for proof of this this condition. He just says, my hands will bruise and I'm a doctor. I can't have bruised hands. I don't really, I, I can't believe that held up. Anyways, since Dr. Schneeberger is doing it voluntarily and not ordered by the court, or police, he can choose, I guess. And the technician has no choice in the matter and must draw blood from his left arm. Now the technician is seen clearly in the video. She is, it's clear. You can watch it in the Forensic Files episode. Um, and he rolls up his sleeve. The technician is seen cleaning the area of skin on his arm. She finds a vein. She sticks the needle in the vein, piercing the skin. But this time, no blood is coming out. Like, what the fuck? Is he bloodless or something? How is this possible? How does he keep doing this shit? I don't know. Let's find out. The technician thinks perhaps there's an issue with the syringe. So she gets another one and eventually draws blood. But when the sample is drawn, she looks confused. You can see it on the, on the videotape. And she's seen on the recording looking at it curiously. And her face is like, I, what is happening? Like she does, she, yeah, her face is, it's, 
It speaks a thousand words. She even says on the day that she drew the blood sample on the camera, like on the recording, when she's looking at the blood sample, Dr. Schneeberger isn't in the room. Um, it's after she has drawn the blood, she's packaging it up, she's doing whatever they do after, and she says, quote, it's a little strange, the blood doesn't look really kind of fresh, I don't know, unquote. And she's looking at it like, what is this? Why, why does this blood look stagnant? Then, later in an interview in 72 Hours, she says, quote, I've never seen blood in anybody that was alive that was of that color, unquote meaning that blood is stagnant. It's dead blood. When blood has oxygen in it, it's like a, it's a bright red. So if you go for a run and then get blood drawn, it comes out cherry red because of the high oxygen levels. But in blood that has little oxygen or no oxygen in it, then it's more of a dark sludge-like color. But how could that be? She took the sample herself. She felt his flesh and put that needle into his vein herself. The doctor is alive. He's not a zombie. Or is he? Imagine if that was the twist. No, it's not. The technician was right. When they tried to test the sample, it was too degraded to be tested, meaning too old. But how is this fresh blood sample so badly degraded, it can't be used for testing. And this is actually like a real question I'm having right now. I actually don't understand this because can't labs test old dried up blood from crime scenes for DNA? Blood people, let me know what's up. So Candy was pissed off that this has happened again. But now police were very sus. They were thinking, okay, we've got some dead blood coming out of this guy's arm what okay this is weird now unfortunately there wasn't too much police could do at this point the following year in april of 1997 someone else speaks out against dr schneeberger alleging that he had drugged and sexually assaulted her and this person was his stepdaughter his wife lisa's daughter dr schneeberger's own wife calls police to report this. The stepdaughter's name was never released anywhere that I found, most likely because she was 15. That's right, 15. Lisa's daughter tells her mother that her stepfather, Dr. Schneeberger, had been allegedly giving her injections after sneaking into her bedroom uh, for the last several years and raping her. The daughter shows a mother a condom wrapper that was left on her bed and says he's done this before. This means since about 1995, he has been sexually assaulting his stepdaughter. And this girl, she would have been 13 years old when this started to her, started happening to her. In the 72 Hours episode, it doesn't so much say he was sneaking in and giving her injections. I don't really know if they're speaking about multiple times that this had happened, but they say that the stepdaughter wasn't feeling well the night before and Dr. Schneeberger was like, oh, well, I can give you something to make you feel better, like it will relax you. And being a doctor, he's allowed to give these injections at home and to his family and they trust him. And he gave her an injection and then just absolutely horrific. And then he raped her. 
When Lisa kicks Dr. Schneeberger out of the home, the police obtain a warrant and in Dr. Schneeberger's office, they find a box full of medications, syringes, and condoms. What the fuck kind of box is that? That is so fucked up. That is like something out of a horror movie. In the forensic files, it says Lisa found the box first and in the 72 hours episode, it says police found it. So I'm not sure, but it's likely Lisa found it and told police about it. So maybe it's a mixture of both of those things. Either way, the box was found. It was evidence. Lisa Lisa knew about it. The police knew about it. There was a warrant for it. It's 100% accurate that that was found in his office. Lisa is so remorseful, she didn't know sooner and couldn't have stopped this. She was also quoted in an interview with CTV's W5 saying that maybe if she had believed Candy that none of this would have happened to her daughter. Okay, that is so sad. In the 72 hours episode on, on this, it reports that Lisa had asked her daughter, why didn't you tell me sooner? And her daughter says the most heartbreaking thing she could have possibly said. She says, you didn't believe Candy, so why would you believe me? Oh, fuck. Talk about a thousand knives to Lisa's heart at that moment where her daughter would have said that. She, the guilt she would have been feeling would have been out of this world. Like it's something I could never even comprehend because wow, that is powerful. That is powerful words, powerful words. I can't even imagine what a tough pill to swallow that would have been for Lisa. It is a horrifying situation to be in. I'm not sure if Lisa ever apologized to Candy, but I find it highly likely she did. Candy hears the news about this and she cries. She's disgusted because she never wanted this to happen to anyone else. That's why she was fighting so hard, not just for her own justice, but to to make sure that this didn't happen to anybody else. And now she's hearing that it has been happening to his own stepdaughter. Now police arrest Dr. Schneeberger and they also have what? Oh, what do they have this time? A warrant. They've obtained a warrant for his DNA, which means they can take whatever fucking sample they want in any form they want. And they choose three. They choose three ways just to be sure that these samples cannot be manipulated. So they take a blood sample from a finger prick, not his left arm. They take a hair sample from his head and they take a saliva sample. Wow, finally, police say that Dr. Schneeberger looked worried this time. He appeared different from the last times that they had taken samples from him. Guess what? All three samples are a motherfucking match to the semen taken from Candy five years ago. They finally have the evidence they needed and Dr. John Schneeberger is arrested and charged with rape, not only for his stepdaughter, but for Candy's rape seven years ago. Boom, here we go, okay. Two years later was his trial, November, 1999. And he has a very interesting defense up his sleeve. He gets on the stand and tells them all about how he gave them, uh, what? That's right, fake blood. At this part, I was like, what? How? We know why, but what and how? Okay, so here we go. I'm going to refer 
to him now as Schneeberger because I'm going to guess he probably isn't a doctor at this point. Surely they would have revoked his medical license after the box of syringes, drugs, and condoms were found in his home office. I feel like that's grounds for, uh, uh, yeah, getting your uh, license suspended or revoked forever, hopefully. So Schneeberger says that when he offered to give a blood sample, he surgically implanted a tube under his skin that was filled with one of his patient's blood. And the tube looked like a vein and blood came out of it. So why wouldn't the person taking it suspect otherwise? I mean, who the fuck does that? Well, Schneeberger does that, that's who. He tells this openly and willingly in court for a reason. He's not doing this to come clean. He says the only reason he did it was because he was innocent. He didn't rape Candy. Instead, Candy was setting him up and she broke into his home and stole a used condom of his and that's why his biological evidence was found in her rape kit. And he only gave fake blood because that was the only way he could prove his innocence or beat her in this case. Wow. First of all, wow. Second of all, okay. Third of all, how could anyone fill a tube with someone else's blood, make an incision in their arm, and then slide it through the flesh under the skin, and uh, then pretend like everything's cool and everything's fine? To me, this sounds like a desperate attempt not to get caught. Schneeberger wouldn't roll his sleeve up past the incision mark when the blood was being taken. And the tube, it actually did look like a vein. And you can even see it in the recorded video from, what was it, the third time? I think the third time, the second time, the second time the blood was taken, you can see it. Or no, the third time. Yeah, the second time the police just were in the room watching and the third time it was actually recorded in the forensics lab. And you can see it. I urge you to watch the forensic files on this um, and and just watch it. It is, oh, when once you know what it is, you can see it. It'll give you, it'll give you shivers. It is disturbing. Um, but that's also why he was so insistent on the blood being taken from his left arm because he had only inserted this tube full of his patient's blood into his left arm. So if they were to take it from any other vein in his body, they would have been taking his blood and not this blood that wasn't his. Something that really got me before, like as I was watching this and and I could, they were covering this aspect of the case, something that really made me think was, I was thinking, had he kept that tube of blood inserted in his arm for four, maybe five years, because when they did that third sample and the tech said the blood looked old and not fresh, it's because it was old blood. And if he had reinserted the tube, would he not have used fresh blood? So it it just gets a lot more gross when you think about that. Like, did he keep that surgically implanted under his flesh for half a decade or, did he just keep the blood on hand and then redo the incision every time they wanted to take a blood test? Part of me thinks that he couldn't have possibly kept the tube of blood inserted under his skin for all those years because it would have caused an infection or something. I I don't really know, but either way, I'm just like immediately no, no. No to all of that. No, 
just know. Luckily, John Schneeberger doesn't do well in court and he is found guilty for drugging, sexual assault, and for obstructing justice in the case of Candy. And for his stepdaughter, he is also found guilty for sexual assault. His sentencing was only six years. You know, that makes me so angry. <sighs> Seems like an awfully light sentence to me. Candy was so happy to have the justice. She was happy the truth was out there. I'm sure she was happy to tell all those people who called her a liar. I'm sure she was happy to look at them and say, I was right, you owe me an apology and you only added to my trauma. I don't know if she did that. She seems like a really good person, so she probably didn't. That's definitely what I would do. I would walk around pointing my finger saying, you were wrong, you were wrong, you were wrong, you were wrong. Apologize, apologize. But um, yeah, I think she's a, I think she's a bigger person than I. She is so charismatic and happy in uh, the interview when talking about this case. And I find that so empowering because what she went through was so traumatic and terrifying, but she fought so hard and for so long to get the truth out. So whatever happened to John Schneeberger, did he get released six years later and start practicing medigan, medicine again? Uh, well, this story isn't over yet. Lisa ends up divorcing John Schneeberger and um, she ends up reverting back to her maiden name, Lisa Dillman. She had an uphill battle to fight now and she was even quoted saying to Candy, quote, it's over for you but it will never be over for us, unquote. John Schneeberger was hell bent on seeing his children and Lisa was dead set against it for obvious reasons. This man just seems like he needs to be in control of everything. So the fact that they're like, uh, well, not they, but Lisa is like, I don't ever want to see you again and I don't want my kids to ever see you again because you're a fucking rapist. Uh, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have that. So he starts his own custody battle with her, which is just fucking sick. Uh, yeah, because Lisa, she didn't want her children to be around him ever. The night before he went to jail, he wanted his kids to sleep over at his place with him. And Lisa said no. And later she had to pay a fine of $2,000 for violating the visitation agreement. I mean, Lisa's probably thinking, worth it. Uh, and the, the his two children who he wanted to sleep over at his house are daughters. He wanted his two young daughters to sleep over at his house before he went to jail for raping his stepdaughter. Ugh. But it didn't end there. Once in prison, he really wanted his children to visit him in prison. And of course, Lisa was like, fuck off, no way. And he starts this legal battle. To my absolute shock, horror, Jean Maurice, everyone, I'm just gonna, usually I don't say um, people's names who are involved in the court cases or who, who, who work the cases in, in details like this, but I just want this to be known because I feel like this is so shameful and I feel like his name should be spoken. Jean Maurice, from Saskatchewan of Queen's Bench Justice, court ordered Lisa to take her five and six year old daughters to the prison once a month to visit with Schneeberger. What 
the fuckery world is this? A court order to bring two very young girls into a prison to visit a man who raped a 15-year-old girl who was his stepdaughter and those young girls' half-sister. So essentially, they were being forced, and I say forced because it was court-ordered, this was forced to visit with their sister's sexual predator. Am I missing something here? How is this legal? Can someone look into this Jean Maurice person, please? Because this sounds shady as fuck. So I'm not entirely sure how the custody battle played out, uh, but I read Lisa was planning to follow the court order, but I'm not sure if she did. I, I really hope she found a way out of that. So what happened when he was released from prison? A six year sentence, that's not long at all. He would have been out in his 40s when released. According to ForensicFilesNow.com, Schneeberger was released after only four years of his six-year sentence. Oh my god, what is the justice system? I'm crazy. His medical license was taken away, thankfully. Could you imagine if he was allowed to practice medicine still? I would have lost my mind. It wouldn't surprise me. Honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if they were like, yeah, here you go, keep your medical license and keep drugging and raping women. And oh, would you like some more young girls? We'll like make it the law that they have to come see you. What is going on here? Like my head is just dizzy from this. But um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he, <laughs> if he was allowed to keep practicing medicine after that whole visitation shit. But it, it would enrage me, obviously. I'm slightly enraged right now. Schneeberger gets released after four years of being held in a prison in British Columbia, and this asshole moves right back to Saskatchewan. He moves to Regina, where Candy lives. But he can't practice in he can't practice medicine any longer. So he takes work doing demolition and carpentry. But not long after this, he is deported back to South Africa by the Canadian government. And the reason why made me shake my head at the police because. All they had to do was look into his past in South Africa when the first allegation was put against him to see that it might be, it might not be the first time someone has accused him of rape. In 1993, Schneeberger left out of his Canadian citizenship application that he was being investigated for what crime? rape in South Africa. Maybe because he wasn't convicted, he never had to disclose that information, but surely anyone being investigated can't leave the country they're being investigated in. Also, how did he ever pass all the criminal background checks? I have two citizenships, okay? I have one that I was born with and I have one that I just got a few weeks ago after a 10 year process. And let me tell you, I underwent countless police checks and had to submit fingerprints and I had to tell them every single country I had visited in the last decade. It was a grueling process. It took me 10 years to do and I just don't understand how John Schneeberger slipped through all of this. I just don't know. Maybe be because he was a doctor, they were like, oh, well, we, it's easier for you. I don't know. Now Canada is saying, get the hell out of here at John Schneeberger, and they sent him packing. Once he got back to South Africa, he tried to practice medicine again. This fucking guy, this fucking guy, 
The last thing known about John Schneeberger is that he was back living with his mother in South Africa and he was working in catering. So thankfully he's not practicing medicine again, but he's still out there and he's still free. And somebody like that, I feel like they just don't stop raping. I feel like it's going to escalate from there. I feel like there should be eyes on this guy. I feel like he should be on probation in South Africa or, or something. I just will never understand the mind of this monster. He had everything people aspire for. He had a wife who loved him and trusted him and supported him. He had children. He had a highly regarded job and he hurt those who trusted him. He blew up his life and he just hurt so many people in the process. The last information I found on Candy is that she was still in Canada in Saskatchewan in Regina working as a care assistant for the addictions services facility helping people and being a damn good person because that's who she is. This case was actually turned into a movie which only aired in Canada. I haven't seen it. I believe it's called I Accuse. So yeah, I've yet to, to watch it, but if you find it, let me know. Maybe send me a link on Instagram or something. Candy was also in interviews in the Bad Blood episode for Forensic Files, the, the, the episode I've been talking about a lot during this, this case, and also in the 72 Hours interview, and that episode was called Good Doctor, which I also watched, and I will link all of that in my, in my show notes, of course. Something that I almost forgot to mention is that when John Schneeberger went back to South Africa, he was now referred to as Dr. Rape, as everyone saw what he had done in Canada, which I found fitting because now he could never escape what he had done. He was branded. He was labeled a rapist. Everyone knew and they would just openly call him Dr. Rape. So, hell yes to Candy. She fought the good fight and she was rejected by her community, but she kept fighting for the truth to get out. The private eye describes her as being tough as nails, but also very sweet. She persevered when most people would have given up. What she did took so much courage and persistence. That Halloween night, Schneeberger chose the wrong woman to pick a battle with. So to John Schneeberger, I say, hell no. For photos pertaining to this case, please follow Hell No, A True Crime Podcast on Instagram. Please rate, follow, and review on whatever platform you are streaming this on if those options are available to you. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye!